This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Proden, the Safety Doc, and we are about to embark on episode 101, Customer Perceived Value, Putting a Price on School Safety. So when we think of the concept of customer perceived value, it's like uh, brand name beans in a store up on the shelf. And you can either go with the brand name beans or the generic beans. Um, Both are probably going to be the same, but for some reason, people tend to go with brand name because they think they're getting more for their money. We're going to get into that concept somewhat today in this episode. A few anecdotes. One, thanks to John Steele and the John Steele Show for having me on as a guest A few nights ago, we went to a deep dive into school safety. Uh, What I wrote after that interview was, listen to this, be entertained, leave with knowledge to negotiate disaster when it crosses your path and learn what's really going on with the school safety spending spree. I greatly enjoyed that. You can find it on my Twitter feed or just go on YouTube and type in John Steele. And let me see, it is a message here from, I bet you it is my good friend RJ, who's working on my logo. And you know what? We are going to check this live here during the show. Normally we wouldn't do that, but it is. Um, so I'm just going to type here, awesome, thank you. And that's great. So... R.J. Jones is finishing up the banner of the new Safety Doc logo. I've already been using the first logo that he designed. Um, so it's phenomenal. It's, it's awesome. It's an avatar of me. It's a lot of fun. Uh, he is so talented. He's working on the banner. So he's been getting back and forth with me on some of the different sketches that he has for the banner. And yeah, so... Let's talk about it. Some rebranding going on here with the Safety Doc podcast. We crossed 100 episodes, so it's time to update the branding. So it's an avatar of the Safety Doc. Again, RJ Jones out of Chicago putting that together. Awesome stuff. And we're also doing a new header, so the whole Twitter um, header is going to change my web page. And actually, I'm working with somebody 
once we get past July 4th to put together a Facebook page for School of Airs, my book. Right now, I have not been on Facebook for maybe five years, so I need to carefully go back in. It's very interesting when you return to Facebook because I believe if you delete your account and you log back in within 15 days, it reinstates your account. So I have to delete it, and then I have to wait 15 days, and then I have to re-register. And this time I need to use my middle initial because there is a David Perodin who is a professor in Thailand, also teaches in a similar field to me. The guy's extraordinary, actually. His work is phenomenal. But sometimes people will email me thinking that I am him. Um, I don't know if he gets email about me, the safety doc here in the States, but um, I want to make that distinction by putting my middle initial out there. And just to create a business page for School of Airs, my book. Um, not that I'm going to go back and refriend, you know, a thousand people and stuff like that. That's not my objective. That's why I got off of Facebook. But really, it comes down to um, when you have a book releasing, a major book, when you're working with conferences as a keynote presenter, people want to know that you have a Facebook page. So it's just one of those things that you have to do. So again, thank you, John Steele and The John Steele Show. Go in and listen to that. You can find it on YouTube. Just type in John Steele, J-O-H-N underscore S-T-E-E-L-E, John Steele. And you'll be able to find the show that we did in the past week about school safety. It was phenomenal. It's about um, an hour and 40 minutes, I believe we go into a deep dive about school safety. But in general, again, like I said, just a lot of information that is going to help you be better at handling chaos when it will cross your path. I just got back from vacation, family vacation, out in Door County, Wisconsin. So if you look at Wisconsin, it's the kind of the arm that sticks out, the peninsula. Uh, awesome. We go up pretty much every year to Door County. This year, the lighthouses were closed due to high waves on Lake Michigan. So not due to, to rain, uh, cold, anything like that, but because high waves. It was windy. So obviously they don't want tourists on the islands close to these lighthouses and then going down near Lake Michigan when you have those types of waves coming in. So that was a little bit of a downer because it's always fun to climb to the top of a lighthouse and look out um, and and just to see what that Fresnel lens, um, you know, from a hundred plus years ago and how they made that. And it's still still there. It's just amazing. But uh, we had a lot of other fantastic fun things we did. Hey, the kids swam in the pool at the resort for a lot of the time. That's what they liked. It was fine. I pulled up a chair, took a nap, actually. (laughs) My wife said I was snoring at one point, probably. But uh, I uh, also did go-karts with my youngest daughter, who was technically tall enough, but not old enough to have her own go-kart. So the guy wouldn't give me two tickets, even though I tried to negotiate the deal of saying, hey, she's mature, she's tall, she's, you know, strong, she can handle a go-kart. Said, no, we can't do it. So I get in 
And then the guy attending the go-karts, where all of them are, says, well, your daughter can ride. She's tall enough. And I said, but the guy up there didn't sell me the ticket. He said it's a liability issue. And he's like, well, go back and get a ticket. Like, I'll let both of you ride. You can have your own go-karts. I said, well, that's not going to work. Like, how am I going to go back and override this decision? So I'm like, one of two things can happen. You can just, like, give her a go-kart to ride on. Or it's like it'll be her and I, and, and it's a shared go-kart, so you sit side by side and dad drives. And then, um, but I did say, you know, can you give us some extra laps? Because, you know, I kind of wanted her to have this experience on her own. And he said, sure, like not a problem. So you're supposed to get, I don't know, four laps, and we ended up getting like 11. And the problem with that is when you're going full speed on a go-kart, on a track and then all of your turns are right turns after a while like you just want it to end like i'm like so they have a stoplight you know set up red yellow and green and i'm like when is this thing going to turn yellow like when we have one lap left because like dad's ready to puke right now i just like we just need to end this it's been great i love it but dude like we can bring this to a close so i kind of like wave to him up in his 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 booth he was at there and said, you know, this is good. Like we've had enough here. I appreciate the extra laps, the double or triple that you've given us. It's a solid buddy. I really appreciate that. But uh, let's bring this to a close. So, but yeah, the one time a year I get to go crazy with go-karts is a fun time. I look forward next year. My daughter will be old enough to drive, uh, but I don't think she'll be able to outpace me because I just put the pedal to the metal and uh, I can I can just go full speed, and of course you know everything the with the tires are, um, but yeah I'm just on the steering wheel and and just like rifling around the corners, and that's that's just the way that it is. It's a great time. It's a great time. We did miniature golf. Um, yeah, daughters enjoyed that. We tried a new course. had had a fun time with that. We go to a farm. Uh, so girls get to hold baby kittens, they get to feed goats, things like that. It's really nice. And, and, and just, you know, going along Lake Michigan, such a different atmosphere. You know, it's great this time of year, obviously. I would not want to be up there in winter. Wouldn't be my thing, but we really had a great time. So I appreciated that. Um, as a family vacation, stopped off at Lambeau Field on our way up, but didn't really find anything in the, uh, pro shop i was looking for a fleece a packers fleece because i have so many packers shirts and now insulated undershirts um i thought in winter it'd be nice to have like a fleece to go with this so i couldn't find one though i mean nothing they had and they some of the stuff they had was just like too crazy like too too out there like a big packer logo on the the shoulder and stuff like that i'm like no i just like the like green fleece like with a packer it says packers or something like that that's all i need didn't have it, so walked away. Um, it's always interesting because the players that have left the team recently, they take the player jerseys and they have to mark them down significantly. So they're like two, three hundred bucks, like the game type jerseys that have the the numbers sewn on and the name sewn on, and they mark them down to like forty to try to move them. So, uh, but I didn't buy one. I was kind of interested in one of them, but I don't want to wear a jersey with somebody else's name on the back. So it's kind of like I. I'm like, okay, like I was contemplating, do I buy this and then have the name removed off the back and just have, you know, keep the numbers on it? I almost went there, but then I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't really need it. So <laughs> when you get a 47 year old guy wearing like a jersey, 
just kind of not my thing. But anyway, um, yeah. So prepping for the July 3rd PBS presentation, I will be presenting at University of Wisconsin-Madison. I always refer to it as University of Wisconsin-Madison. Some do the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In my book, it's University of Wisconsin-Madison. How they'll introduce me is University of Wisconsin-Madison. So put a lot of time, I mean a lot of time, working up midnight, one in the morning. Um, And I'll tell you, this is when your friends in the safety community, when you're the safety doc, come in and and really give you that boost. It's people that I can contact and say, I need this, that. I need to know what you're doing. I contacted uh, the person that does firearms training for the Chicago Police Department, needed some information that I'd be incorporating into the presentation. So people in my network, in the Safety Not Network, these, these are ex- exceptional, phenomenal people. I am so blessed to be working with them. So thank you so much. You know who you are. Some of you will be recognized on July 3rd, but just thank you for everyone who helped me put that presentation together. I did present on May 22nd, 2013 on PBS following the Sandy Hook massacre in December 2012, and that was an empirical presentation about the state of school safety. This is really an update to that um, I don't go through a timeline of school shootings, and, and I kind of get right into what's happening right now um, and spend a lot of time on the massive push to fortification, the fact that since my last presentation, we've been averaging over 400 bills for school safety across the states, and about 80 of those get enacted a year. And that pace is actually increasing this year from January through April. We were over 250 bills nationwide. So what does that really mean for school safety? And what is school safety uh, manifesting like in all of the schools across the country? Talk about that in my book, but this presentation is much different. It's a compliment to the presentation I give in 2013. So if you watch that one and then watch this one, it would be perfect act one, act two. And then I conclude with indicating the top threat to student safety and school safety, which I do not believe is what everybody's kind of going to um, make the assumption of what that that would be. So you're going to have to wait to the presentation to find that out, but it's actually something that's rapidly developing just in the last few weeks. My connections with the intelligence community have told me uh, this is something we don't have a way to counter right now and not sure if we'll ever have a chance to counter. We might be entering a new paradigm in student safety and just personal safety, which could be somewhat frightening, but if you know how to interface with chaos, um, you can position yourself pretty well Um, for these types of things. But most people aren't going to be prepared. This is rapidly developing. So July 3rd, tune into PBS, Public uh, Broadcast System. This will also be closed caption and then syndicated following the third, probably coming out sometime in fall. I think last time it took them two to three months to go and closed caption it. And then they put it before a review board and then they give it a rating. Last time it was rated G. This will be rated G also. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. 
Attorney James Sibley proclaims, A brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So I received an REI gift card um, from my mother-in-law um, for my retirement. So yes, thank you for that. Uh, and there's a funny story that goes with that. So going to the REI store, um, which isn't far from me, about 40 minutes away. So my only goal with this card is to apply it toward a hooded sweatshirt, okay? You've heard podcasts. It's usually in winter, you know, 55 degrees on a warm day down here in the North Star Recording Studios. So, um, yeah, it's chilly down here. I mean, right now it's 71 degrees. It's nice, but it's summer, you know. It's like 80 degrees outside, so it's a good place to be. But winter, it's rough to be down here. Um, and the older I get, the less I like being down in the North Star Studio. I love the podcast. I love doing this for you, the safety community. Don't get me wrong, but it's... Uh, yeah, I gotta, I've got to figure out something down here to, to update the studio. Haven't No updates since 2002, so got to get got to get on that. But anyway, I go into REI, and, I, and, and of course, like, REI is an upper-end store, so they have a lot of employees, and they're all dressed in kind of this, like, you know, they look like they're Dora the Explorer, ready to take you out on a hike, and it's like, that's fine, you know. I said, sir, what can I help you with? And I said, looking for a hooded sweatshirt, okay, if you can point me in that direction, be good. All right. Then the guy, nice guy, you know, it's nothing but nice guy, starts asking questions. So he said, you know, do you do a lot? Do you do hiking? I said, I'm not really. No, I've, I've hiked. Will you wear this hiking? I, I don't think so. You know, incidentally, yes, it could happen, but, you know, don't plan on it. Like, so let's not build a purchase around me buying this for hiking. He said, do you bike? I said, well, yeah, actually I do bike, you know, but when I bike, um, yeah, I've got a whole different set of clothing that I wear for biking. I'm not wearing a sweatshirt, a zip-up sweatshirt for biking. So, yeah, okay, so I bike, but this isn't a purchase for biking. Do you ski? Nope, I don't ski. Had skiing in a class in high school. It sucked. I hated it, but I don't ski. My brother built a house on a ski hill. He was an avid skier. He loved it. For me, though, no. Do you camp? I'm like, no, I don't. Like, I've given up on that. Like, that was years ago. Like, I will always stay in a hotel or a resort. Just the way that it is for the safety dock, okay? I don't camp. So he's trying to throw all these scenarios out there of, hey, here's ways you could use this. And I'm like, okay, here's the deal, dude. Like, I, I appreciate this. I appreciate this. But this basically is needed to keep an old man, which is me, warm in his unheated basement office as he edits his podcast 
and writes books and journal articles. So you get the idea? Like, that's what I need. That's what I need. So probably something thick, something warm, but that's it. It's like downstairs in the studio. And this isn't anything anyone's probably going to see. So, you know, and if I can, if I can have it like in black, that's awesome because I can wear that with my Packer stuff, which um, I was able to acquire a lot of insulated Packer stuff off of eBay. And last time I was at Lambeau Field, they were having a big sale on player stuff. So I was able to get a lot of insulated shirts, which are awesome, by the way. I mean, these things are like keep you extremely warm during winter. But I'm like, so yeah, I tell the guy, I'm like, nope, nope. Here, old man, me, needs to stay warm in basement where I work, Okay. That's all this needs to do. And he took me right to the area where I need to go. Anything else you need? Like, no, buddy, you've been good. You've been good. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. So sponsors here of the show, uh, the405media.com, the405media out of Los Angeles, California, John Grant, the League of Extraordinary Podcasters. Tune in to our good friend Aaron Clary and the Clary Podcast. I believe Aaron is after me. I am 2 p.m. Central. I believe Aaron is 3 p.m. Central. Aaron Clary and the Clary Podcast. Of course, you can find him so many other places, captaincapitalism.blogspot.com. Larry Roberts is also on the 405 Media with Readily Random. It is a radio station of some of the most awesome podcasts you will ever listen to, so tune into it. Radioandpodcast.com, radioandpodcast.com, Jim Mallard. Thank you, Jim, for making the Safety Doc podcast, part of the regular lineup of radio and podcasts, also kind of like a radio station, radio and podcast, also supporting the book from the Safety Doc School of Airs. And I will be on, I believe, August 6th as a guest on Jim's show, The Mallard Report, and we will be talking about school safety um, exceptional quality. Talk about Jim Mallard. So the guys had on Roger Stone um, on his show. David Pilates, who's talked about missing uh, persons, and I mean, and I mean, the list goes on. He's just a he's a phenomenal host, phenomenal person, Jim Mallard. Um, just also a shout out to my publisher for my book, School of Airs, the publishing house Roman and Littlefield. The book is releasing August 10th, so you'll be able to buy it then. But, hey, you can pre-order it right now, and a lot of people are doing that, getting a lot of people contacting me saying, Hey, Dave, just put in my order for your book. Uh, looking forward to it because they've been hearing me present about it. It's 204 pages once you include the foreword from actor Danny Woodburn. Check him out from Seinfeld. Incredible activist um, for people with disabilities inclusion in Hollywood. Danny's a phenomenal person. Um, so Danny Woodburn wrote the forward, but the book is 204 pages. You can get it done in two nights. A lot of anecdotes, a lot of stories, but it is not only going to help you with school safety, it's going to help you with life safety and understanding. I referenced this in my interview with John Steele where I talked about my car accident on January 18th and how writing the book and understanding Taurus, T-U-R-U-S, and chaos theory was so important because as I entered that accident, I understood I was entering chaos. 
and I was also able to rapidly get myself out of chaos in less than 24 hours and back to a Taurus or similar type situation. It's very important. This can happen if a family member passes, if you lose a job, anything like that happens, a storm hits your area, how to navigate, how to negotiate with chaos. Very strong theme throughout the book. And of course, if you're a taxpayer and wanting to know how dollars, the $3 billion plus are being spent in the school safety industry, you need to read the book because a lot of it is not being spent in a very wise and accountable fashion. So let's talk about today's show. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Customer perceived value equals total perceived benefits minus total perceived costs. So what does that mean? Customers perceived value. So if I'm going in to buy a car, let's do this. Any of us buying a car. So customer perceived value. How much value am I getting out of this car for how much I'm spending? Okay, so total perceived benefits. So salesperson say, you know what? Very safe. Very safe car. 11 airbags. And also like here's your fuel economy and whatever. So you take all of these things into consideration and what your warranty is, um, and then you kind of come up with your total perceived cost. So you know what, this it's worth it for me to spend this amount of money on this vehicle because it has a warranty and it gets good fuel economy and it's also rated very safe, okay? So those are the type of things. Now, when we apply this to school safety, the narrative significantly changes. Customers perceive value. The customer is the parent. Very clearly now in school safety, the customer is the parent. When you're using house money, which comes in the forms of hundreds of millions of dollars of grants to schools. We talked about these bills, you know, the 400 plus bills a year that are proposed and the 80 that get enacted. And there are dollars attached to those. So we're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in the school industry, uh, safety industry. You know, there's the number out there through many sources, it's $3 billion a year right now in school safety. I argue that it's higher than that because you can have a referendum where you roll into, you know, safety type things, such as we're replacing the doors, which are 40 years old and rusted out, which we should have replaced anyway through regular maintenance, and we didn't, and we're replacing the windows, but we're going to put those under the safety heading. I've seen that happen. I know that happens. So I would say our total expenditures on school safety are really about $5 million a year. Or we have to renovate this entrance. We have to update these things on a school HVAC, whatever. And at the same time, we're going to, you know, include this change in our entryway 
a key card system for all of the doors and whatever. Just saying, when we talk about the real numbers, I think we're closer to $5 billion a year for school safety. I'm going to read um, some segments from an article from the uh, Small Business Chronicle. So here we go. Customer perceived value is the notion that the success of a product or service your business offers hinges on whether customers believe it can satisfy their wants and needs. Okay. To better understand customer perceived value, it helps to understand a related term, value proposition. A value proposition is a comparison of the benefits offered by a company's products and services to the price it asks customers to pay. So when we, we talk about price, so make this good, price we ask customers to pay. In school safety, it's the price we're asking the taxpayers to pick up for this, for whatever it is, usually a fortification. But anyway, anyway, companies can generally influence the value proposition in one of two ways. They can use long-term brand building advertising to emphasize key traits and characteristics of the brand and products. So, of course, you go with some brands because they've been out there a long time, so they're established. The traits can be entirely pragmatic, such as power and performance, or more ephemeral, such as positioning a product just as very, very cool. Business owners can also offer relatively low cost to enhance value. Ultimately, the key is the customers perceive that the product's merit merits more than justify its price. So basically, again, what you are buying is justifying its price. It's adding benefit. So you're getting a deal, right? Whatever you're spending, you're putting into this is well worth it because the return is great. It's, it's very important to you. So um, use research studies to determine what customers value. This happens a lot, right? You get mailed a research study, you get a call, and it's, you know, we just want to ask you 20 questions, something like that. I have a big problem with surveys when it comes to school safety. I actually did a podcast on this. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. But surveys are one way, and especially when you're working with families who might be English language learning students who are English language learners, um, the survey might not capture what they're able to comprehend or else what is relevant to them. I mean, if you're asking them, for example, on a, a survey about uh, school safety and you say, you know, which one of these things is your biggest safety concern? And it could be one, intruder. Um, it could be two, bullying bullying, right? Um, and, you know, number three, I don't know, s storms or weather. Okay, so those are the choices that you provide them. But what the students might be thinking is actually, you know what, like our playground's very dangerous. Our playground is falling apart and kids are getting hurt out there. So like, where does that go as a safety thing? Because every time we go out there, Jimmy's getting his jeans ripped up and Sally's getting some teeth knocked out. Plus, who puts a playground on blacktop anyway? Like when I grew up, playground was completely on blackground. I think one of the structures went up like two stories, actually. It's pretty cool. Um, you can never do that stuff today. So it's better to use listening sessions or 
focus session. So let's talk about parents. So we talk about the parents' role in school safety, and schools do a number of things. One of the things they do is include parents in a safety advisory committee. I've seen this a lot as a school safety expert. So they'll create a school safety steering committee, I guess is what they'll call it, include some parents, maybe some teachers, community members, and administrator. It's largely to figure out what we're going to do with school safety. And um, these these type of, of groups um, tend to start out as advisory and then really make a recommendation to a board or superintendent, and then that, that gets accepted. So they change from advisory to more than advisory, which is very dangerous. But it's a practice that happens quite a bit. We also have a lot of listening sessions, which really aren't listening sessions. It's sessions for parents to come in and tell a school what they want for school safety. And what parents want for school safety is what is visible. They want to see the yellow bollards or the steel tusk sticking out of the cement in front of schools, cameras, the tinted window films, all of those types of things are what they want to see. One of the most amazing experiences that I had in school safety was consulting with a district um, which was rural and also very anti-government. It you could literally drive through this community and get out to the fringes of it where they would be busing in the kids and you would see um, a huge piece of plywood out in the front yard of a you know residence and it would say, you know, government, go away or, you know, maintain our privacy or something like that. I mean, these people were very anti-government, okay? So the superintendent was sharing some of the school initiatives with me. And this was also a school uh, which had bats in one of their elementary schools, baseball bats in every room um, to possibly combat an intruder, okay? So, I mean, yeah. So I talked to the superintendent and I said, tell me what's happening here for safety so we can I can at least get a baseline before we can have a discussion on what what I might be able to offer you as the safety doc. And, you know, I work a lot again on the induction process when you have high turnover areas, which this was. I mean, that was one of their issues. They were turning over so many teachers a year. They were leaving this area for areas that were more uh, metro, more stuff going on, and where both um, people could be employed. Uh, so it was it was really a tough situation for this district. But, but I asked the superintendent, I said, well, tell me what's going on. He said, well, Dave, we implemented this um, system in our middle school and our high school where you have to show an ID before you get into the building. So the entrance is reconfigured through a grant, right, a one-time thing. And um, we scan the, the – mostly it's like a driver's license. We scan it, and then it somehow goes through some database. And 60 seconds later, people are either allowed in or they're not allowed in. So I looked at him and I said, boy, that must have been like horrible, right? Like everybody's fighting that because I drove around your district and this is obviously very anti-government. So people aren't going along with this. And he said, nope, no one's complained. We've had it in place a few months. Everybody's compliant with it. I mean, some people might grumble a little bit to go back to a vehicle 
retrieve some kind of license, but they don't argue this uh, point. And I, I thought that was amazing. So we talked further about it. He said, Dave, any, they'll do anything for safety, anything for the perception, this customer perceived value. If this is in place to keep their kids safer, even if they believe the government might be taking data off of their driver's license or there could be some weird thing that they don't want revealed that they visited town that day, who knows? These are the people that disable like the OnStars in their own vehicles. We'll disassemble them and whatever. Um, they override that in these cases because the customer perceived value of this expenditure, which was through a grant or house money of if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, could have been more. I didn't ask the cost on it to put the system in place and what it was to sustain it. I said, no, people just go for it. They, it was easy to implement, easy to implement, and no one was arguing with it. This perception, this customer perceived value. This is happening in school safety right now to an alarming extent. I am certainly for school safety. I have children who attend school very much for school safety. But also when we get to a point where customer perceived value is, we cannot put a price tag on anything that could potentially save a student's life. We open the door for vendors to sell us anything. We open the door where there is not competition because anything that gets put before you gets bought without checks on research of that product. Um, it is it is anything goes right now. It really is the wild west. Um, so if we have more checks and balances in place, if it was more competitive for these dollars, if there was more of a practice, I actually think we would get more products to market that had survived the test process, the scientific method, the research trials of how can students with disabilities, blindness, autism, being deaf, interface with these different technologies such as apps. Um, so, but it's not happening. It's not happening. So let's go back to customer perceived Value. So customer perceived value is the notion that the success of a product or service your business offers hinges on whether customers believe it can satisfy their wants and needs. Well, totally that's true in schools, right? Because vendors give very dynamic presentations. They're very well funded. So when they come out, they have um, the 24 weight paper. Everything is done in color graphs, very well laid out. Um, and of course, they're going to give this powerful presentation and they're going to start it off with, uh, you know, a 30 second slideshow, which is going to just rapidly put in front of you headlines of school shootings or school intruders or school surveys, which, you know, students are saying students can't trust adults and can't report to adults and aren't confident in their school to keep them safe and whatever. Um and that becomes their research. So it gets pretty easy to sell things when you when you roll that out ahead of time. It actually does because people are predisposed. It's like this pareidolia. They expect that you're going to come with the solution. They're not challenging you on the product. You can offer some crazy things, and I've seen some things out there, and I'm like, how did this get purchased? But again, you know, it, it happens. So... Um, 
to better understand customer perceived value, it helps to understand a related term value proposition. We talked about that. Um, companies can generally influence the value proposition in one of two ways. They can use long-term brand building, um, advertising to emphasize key traits. We don't probably see that in school safety a lot because a lot of what's out there is brand new. I mean, it goes from conception to marketing in warp speed. So it's not like you can say, yeah, this company, which has been in the business of school safety for the last 35 years. I mean, those folks just don't exist anymore. I mean, they don't. They're not out there. You know, it's the company that's that's been around for three months. They thought of this idea and it immediately went to market and somebody bought it. And once it gets to market, um, that's how they kind of check to see how it's doing. But um, wow, that's crazy stuff. The traits can. So that's number one. So you can use you can build your brand, which really isn't happening for school safety. The traits can be entirely pragmatic, such as power and performance or more ephemeral, such as positioning a product is just very, very cool. We talked about that. So so that's what's happening right now with school safety. It's like, this is new. It's cutting edge. You need to have this in your school. This will make your school safer. It will save kids' lives if this specific situation unfolds in this very linear, multi-step pattern, which matches what this device is supposed to prevent. I talk about bullards in front of school. Have them in front of my daughter's schools, for example. Yes, if you were to actually take a vehicle and try to crash it through the front doors of the school, the bullards would probably work, right? They would probably stop the vehicle. The thing is, that's not how schools are attacked. So we've just put these bullards in front. And in Wisconsin, I've talked about this before, but they become a hazard in winter when you're trying to shovel around them, when you're trying to keep those paths clear, which people are traversing in and out of school multiple times a day, different shadow patterns, different ice patterns developing. Um, and just people can run into these things. Pete Medic, M-E-D-E-K, out of Ohio Trail Bullards, um, hazards, you know, reports on, on fatalities running into these. But it's like you look at that, it's visible. You can see it. It's big yellow bullards sticking out from the sidewalk. It's visible. School safety can go up and tap it. It's fine, right? And uh, so that's what people want. That's what people want. So deliver the appropriate marketing message. To influence value perceptions, companies try to deliver messages that research indicates should create the desired sense of value with customers. Oh my goodness, the vendors have got this down. And schools will invite vendors in to present. Now, of course, they'll present to the school boards. So you've, you've got this audience, which is already nervous, because the constituents, their parents, um, are, are telling them we need to be safer. And of course, these vendors have these presentations polished and they have them down. And so when you're, when you're watching these presentations, um, you know, it, it's like a theatrical trailer is what it is. Um, so it's a, simple it's a simple message. You employ this, it will keep your school safer. The argument, though, that I would counter to that is under a very, very specific circumstance, possibly yes, but everything is kind of laminated to time and context. And one of the things right now that's very big is window films, either bullet resistive, brake resistive. I don't know what they call them, but these window films that they'll put um, so somebody can't charge through a window or it'd be very difficult to do that or shoot through a window. Um, you could shoot through the window, but to actually have the, 
the window would would stay intact. In it'd be hard to get through the the window. There'd be like this this film you'd have to break through. Um, now that again might be technically accurate, right? But we know schools typically aren't attacked that way. We also know that that would diminish the ability for a sharpshooter from outside to be able to access the school to view inside and how the bullet would travel through the film. In those rare instances, which are just as rare as somebody attacking through the bulletproof glass. Um, but we we know that the Hashong Mahon study, which was done on the West Coast, indicates that sunlight significantly increases academic performance of students and also behavior of students. So when you start to put window films on, you're knocking down the lumens or the light coming in, the natural light, and you're countering this study, which is saying, hey, if we do these things, we're already having students who are performing better, they're connecting better with school. So we put the film on and now we don't have as much natural light coming in. We have some lumens that are, are not getting through to our, our students, you know, light rays being kind of filtered out. Um, so this it does make sense, right? So, but that's not how people see it. Um, deliver the appropriate marketing message to influence value perceptions. Hey, I guess we talked about that, right? So, um, but yeah, vendors are great at this. You get a vendor before a board, a school board. That's the minimal entry political position to be elected to a school board. So you're getting folks that uh, might be there for one term, might be there for you know a couple terms, but this is a entry level position. Um, so they're easily persuaded, and especially in small communities, which a lot of these schools are, they have to be accountable to their neighbors. So if their neighbors are saying, we want that school safer, the board is going to vote for that, especially when house money is on the table in the form of grants, or they can just roll it into referendums, special exemptions that they can pass on to mill rate or the rate that they charge people for residences and for businesses for school taxes. Anything goes right now for school safety. So customer perceived value, I talked about this on the John Steele show. When the perceived value is increased student safety, it's practically unthinkable to assign a price tag to peace of mind. Let me repeat that. When the perceived value is increased student safety, it's practically unthinkable to assign a price tag to peace of mind. So somebody comes in, does a presentation as a vendor, and says, well, for peace of mind, you have to have this product, right? Because if this instant does play out, this will be something that could, depending upon on the evolution of context and all of that and technologies or whatever, if it just perfectly matched up, it could save a life. So there's a counter position to think about, okay? And one is, I'm not saying we shouldn't have school safety. We should have school safety. We should have thoughtful, measured school safety. We should have entrances where we have cameras to know who's coming in our buildings, uh, secured entrances with identifying who comes into our buildings, and, and we have a registry of who's in our buildings at any one time. It's very important if we go into an intruder lockdown, if we have a tornado, a fire drill, things like that, right? Or just who's in your building. Makes sense, right? Um, let me take you in a different direction here. So... Last year, 37,000 vehicular deaths in the United States. 37,000 people die in car accidents. 
we could save 25,000 of those lives every year if we reduce the speed limit to 25 miles an hour, uh, put side and roof airbags in every car and, and decrease the speed limit, I, I said to 25, and, and put a bumper on every car. So basically we do those three things, put a bumper on every car, um, decrease the speed limit to 25 miles an hour. So like you could not drive faster than 25. Like the car, the car would have some kind of governor on it, get to 25, that'd be it. Um, and you, you would have this, this system of, of very redundant airbags. And we could save 25,000 lives a year if we did that instantly. Like that would, multiple, multiple, multiple research studies say like right there, that would, that would save 25,000 lives. Would we do that? Well, no, we wouldn't. No one is going to agree to decrease the speed limit to $25. Let's say that we didn't, or 25 miles per hour. What, let's say that you didn't have to decrease it, but let's say that we were going, you could manufacture a vehicle with special airbags, special, uh, special crumple zones and so forth that would make it so the people, um, the occupants would have a much higher uh, survival rate. So let's say, you know, it might not be 25,000 lives a year, but let's say we could save like 15,000 lives a year, right? Amazing, right? If we did this, but if we did this, it's going to add $10,000 to the price tag of every car. Would we do that? So it's these types of things where we have to start thinking with school safety that there is a price tag threshold to this. We cannot spend our way to safety. And also, if we do that, there are many adverse effects to that mentality, and not only one that we just um, put all of these resources, all of these cash resources into school fortification um, efforts, but let me break it down for you. So consequences for schools. One, contamination of school safety conferences. I see this right now, looking at school safety conferences 10 years ago, you got to see the top experts in the field talk about how to make schools safe, how to build school connectedness, school getting kids connected to teachers, somebody that they could trust, somebody they could report a concern to. That's changed. Right now, they're bringing in FBI, police, security people to do these presentations. Um, that's what the presentations look like. They're also giving vendors breakout sessions so vendors can present about whatever they have. So it's basically like a big paid sales pitch. These things generate a lot of money. I ran conferences back around 2011, 2012, 500 people attending around the Midwest. I know how this works, that your vendors are paying for their table space. If they have a breakout session, they're paying for that. Uh, we never had a keynote that wasn't there to benefit the audience as far as non-biased information, but now the keynotes are either coming from this very specific security perspective or they are vendors. So we have a contamination of school safety conferences and they're all over the place and you can just put this money, uh, put this allocation as a line item into grant funding that we're going to send staff to so many of these conferences and it's usually approved. So, but these conferences have become big money makers. They really are safety conventions, safety device fortification conventions. So it's kind of like when you have a, you know, the big, 
pavilion where they bring in all of the boats and the stuff like that. It's the boating convention or, you know, whatever, you know, all the latest stuff in the boats. It's really fortification. I've gone to these things. What it, it's what it is. If you're not speaking the narrative, you're not going to get included. So that's why, I mean, my offers to present um, at those type of conferences, you know, typically are very limited because I have a position where I believe we don't need to pursue fortification as our way to school safety. That doesn't go very well when you've received maybe $200,000 from your vendors um, who are selling things like bulletproof igloos and stuff like that. So they're not going to bring me in for that. Parents in the community have moved from advisory to directing the school board to make purchases. This is absolutely happening. The school uh, school board has influenced. Parents are saying, we want this. We want the bulletproof film, whatever. Under new construction, this stuff is almost standard right now, but they're wanting their retrofits. They're wanting all of these things. It's really wild if you think about how your community purchases a fire engine. So you do not have an open forum for people to come in and say, you know what, this is what I'd like on the fire engine or different vendors kind of competing for how this fire engine should be built. And ironically, as a firefighter background, I, you could take a fire engine and let's say people would say, you know, you have a pump which will pump a thousand gallons a minute, okay, which is pretty standard on a, on a fire engine. And I'll say, well, could you get two pumps on there so you can pump 2,000 gallons a minute and you know so whoever the vendor is selling the fire trucks technically I guess it's possible it's going to add weight it's going to have to increase your engine size but yeah I mean we could actually do or it could pump maybe 3,000 gallons a minute off this one truck they're like well wow that makes a lot of sense like now we've got one we can do that like 3,000 gallons wouldn't we want to do that so if you actually make a purchase like that what happens is now you have a fire truck where if you're pumping 3,000 gallons of water, hypothetically, from one truck out of like one water main or two adjacent water mains, fire hydrants, I could create a, a situation where you have a vacuum and it could implode those two hydrant areas because you can only take so much water out of those before you create a vacuum and, again, compromise the the integrity of that structure but you wouldn't find that out right until the truck's been delivered and it's been in a couple parades all decorated up and shiny and the sirens going and everybody all happy until you have a really big fire downtown and then you collapse two of your mains and then you're pretty much cooked there's no other option wasn't a good move had a friend who worked on fire engines and one of the things he told me, and this was like 20 years ago, he said the biggest mistake people were making at that time, fire, fire departments were making, is they were trying to do too much with one truck, uh, one fire apparatus. So it would be a ladder truck, which would also have a pump, which would also have rescue type stuff on it. So it's just too much weight for the frame and, you know, taking all these corners, especially in the big cities. These things are out several times a day, so they just wouldn't last. You know, like it gets to a point where a ladder truck is a ladder truck, a pumper is a pumper, and a rescue truck's a rescue truck. I mean, you can't come and combine all of these things. So um, as these things get vetted with school safety, as they get vetted, it just gets easier to replicate them. So if you say, we're going to do the bulletproof film or we're going to put bollards in, 
The next time it comes around with grant money, hey, here's another $200,000. You could upgrade your radios, which you really need to do, by the way. Or you could stick in more bollards in your sidewalk. They're going to go with the bollards, right? Because you can see them. So once you vet them, it's easier to add more of these things. Uh, we might be experiencing a strategic government tactic to make people dependent on the government. Whoa, little conspiracy theory here from the doc. Well, not really. I've talked about, written about this, I should say, in my book, School of Airs, which you should go out and purchase, by the way. School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. Get it at Barnes & Noble, Amazon. It's an ebook. It's like $28.50 an ebook. It's like 30 bucks in traditional hard copy, 204 pages. Worth your time to do that, by the way. But, um, you know, the whole government contract is addressed in the book. goes back to Thomas Hobbes in the English Civil War. talks about the hurricane rescues with the nonprofits of Cajun Navy Relief and Triton Relief Group um, just in the last few years, what that looked like interfacing with the government. And sometimes when the government doesn't want these nonprofits involved because it might give the impression that the government isn't able to uphold their end of the social contract, or meaning we need the government to save us or to provide the answers, which is clearly the message in school safety, right? With all of the grants, look externally to us to give you the money and the vendors will give you the answers, I guess, instead of you looking internal for the answers. We have 81% of the time students um, who carry out school shootings, somebody else knew, one or more people knew. If we can break that code of silence, if we can look internally to break that code of silence and get half of those other people to report this ahead of time, we essentially will decrease school shootings by 50%, right? So, but we're not doing that. We're looking externally toward the answers or being rewarded with grant funding to do that. So, um, most safety devices are very expensive and offer minimal or no increase to creating a safe environment. That's my ultimate question, and I'll have that on PBS. Are we safer with implementing all of these devices with the money that's going toward mental health counseling in school? Um, and I agree that some of these, these things are needed, but are school staff certified? Do they have the background to issue um, a medical diagnosis to carry out a medical treatment, but yet it's tricky. Like in Wisconsin, one of the slides I show is I divide the state in half. The bottom of the state has 111 child psychiatrists employed. The top half of the state has 37. The top half of the state also has very rural, rustic roads and winter, which persists forever. It takes seven months to get an appointment in that upper part of the state might take several weeks in the southern part of the state. So just, are we really making schools safer? So customer perceived value today, we have to make sure that we are not caught into the cycle of we will spend anything and everything to keep children safe. Because once we do that, we open the door to a whole bunch of unchecked devices and practices that we just go and buy hand over fist, not knowing if they work or if they will work. We need to be accountable and responsible. Thank you so much. I'm Dr. David Proden. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast. Hey, follow me at safetyphd.com or safetyphd.com. That's my website, right? Safetyphd.com. Follow me on Twitter at safetyphd. Um, and you'll find out when new episodes come out. A whole bunch is happening here with the book School of Airs.
This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.